Hello and welcome back to Making Media. Today we are replaying one of my favourite episodes from last year. Almost a year to the day, Matt spoke with Spike Eskin, who runs a huge sports radio station as well as hosting a big sports podcast. In the intro, Matt calls Spike an audio genius and it quickly becomes clear why that's true. This is a conversation I have thought about weekly since I first heard it and honestly I'm not joking. Particularly the parts about hosts playing a particular role for the audience and the importance of disagreement in audio formats. It's a podcasting masterclass, and I hope you enjoy listening to it, either for the first time or for the second or third time. We'll be back next week with more media goodness. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, welcome back to Making Media. If you make a podcast or if you like sports, you're going to enjoy this episode. We've brought on someone I consider to be an audio genius. Spike Eskin runs all of programming at New York's WFAN, the original and biggest sports talk radio station, and he's only the second person to ever have that job. Now, you're probably thinking, doesn't everyone just listen to podcasts now? Well, the answer to that is no, but don't worry. He's also got a podcast, a big one. And his podcast, The Rights to Ricky Sanchez, is frequently ranked atop the basketball podcast charts. It's only focused on a single team, the 76ers, but it's been big enough to get a full chapter in a book. And several audience gatherings have been featured on SportsCenter highlights. So he is the coach and he is the talent. During our convo, we go through traits that Spike looks for in audio hosts the benefits and challenges of having practitioners like athletes sitting in the host and chair, strategies for getting audience feedback beyond maniacs on Twitter while still keeping love for the maniacs on Twitter, and differences in sponsorship dynamics between radio and podcasting, framework for good content. Lots of interesting lessons here. And once I wrap up with Spike, Dom and I will do our normal debrief on lessons from both the interview and the conversation more broadly about how we can apply this to the Colossus business. Enjoy this episode and conversation with Spike. All right, Spike, we'll jump around a little bit here, but we'll start out with a fun one to kick off. You've been audio talent yourself, and you've managed audio talent for a very long time. So if you were to create the ideal audio host in a lab, and we could use Madden Create a Player as inspiration what would the traits be and how would you weight them? Wow. Okay. Are we talking about sports specifically? Because I think it's a little different for everything. So can we just say sports just for sake of... We'll start with sports. Sure. Okay. So clear opinions, opinionated is important. A lack of fear of being wrong about those opinions is also important. The ability to withstand being wrong about those opinions likable, and that can mean a million different things. It doesn't mean nice, relatable, and open. I think those are the most important things. I think being opinionated, why don't I combine that with the lack of fear of being wrong? I would actually say that that is probably 60% of it. And then 20% is likable, and then the remaining 20% is relatable and open in some combination. There are differences, whether you're 
national or local or whether you're an A or a B or what town you're in or all those sorts of things. But I think overall, the ability to be opinionated without fear, the ability to be open with your audience and the ability to be somebody that they want to spend time with. That's what I mean by likable. Somebody that they want to spend time with, that they want to spend a lot of time with. I think those are the most important things. The likable point was one I was going to follow up on because while they're not traditional radio, I think of a Skip Bayless or a Stephen A. Smith as certainly being opinionated and not willing to necessarily fear being wrong. But the likable point can certainly be up for debate. So just real quick, I mean, Skip's not a radio host, not an audio host either, really. And Stephen A. is. And I think if you were to divide those two massively talented people, you would say, which one do you want to spend time with? You would say Stephen A. And he's radio host and he's done a lot of audio. The big difference between, for lack of a better word, if we say TV and radio or video and audio, but specifically Skip is a television host, is that when you watch TV and you're watching somebody, you're not feeling like you're spending time with that person. But when you are listening to audio, whether it's in your car or walking your dog, and they're just talking to you, and it's just you and them, the ability to want to spend time with them is different. And that's what I talked to about local and national. And by the way, Stephen A has done plenty of local stuff as well. National, sort of like a cowherd, you can be almost unapologetic in that I'm an opinion guy, because what you're trying to do is drive conversation specifically. And really what ends up in the world are clips, are eight minutes, two minutes, 10 minutes. Even Colin, who does an entire radio show, most of the people that are consuming him through the internet are consuming one of his raps, eight minutes, something like that. When you're spending day after day, hour after hour with somebody, that has to be somebody that you want to actually spend time with or could imagine it in real life. It's not only the difference between video and audio, it's the difference between somebody like Skip and somebody like Stephen A, who are the best at what they do, but I think they do different things, even though they're in the same world. When you mentioned the audio versus video differences, I think that makes a lot of sense. When you pull podcasting into audio, do you think it has all of the same characteristics as a local radio where maybe you do have to be a little bit more likable and the opinionated nature of it doesn't have to be as strong? Or is there even more nuance to it than that? I usually separate podcasts into three categories. There's the serialized storytelling thing. And then there's the information news thing. You're just consuming it to learn things. And then there's like the two people talking to each other podcast, the thing that I've done in my life. I think the third thing, I think, Yes, absolutely. I think there is an element to not even my podcast, but take a basketball podcast. I think the ones that are the most popular are the ones that are about how the hosts consume basketball as much as they are about basketball. It's about them. If you take Chris Vernon and Kevin O'Connor, the ringer, they're distinct personalities. They look at basketball completely different. That's why they call it a mismatch. Right, right. And there's almost like a comfort in the predictability. You could talk about a basketball situation. And if you listen to that podcast regularly, you would know how Vernon would react and you know how Kevin O'Connor would react. And more than likely, you relate to one of them over the other. And you would say that you can't stand the other one. But the truth is, if the other one didn't exist, then podcast would be way more boring. So I think podcasting is different. 
it's a different platform in a number of ways. But if we're talking about the two people talking to each other sort of podcast, the desire to spend time with that person is part of it for sure. The mismatch is a good example. And it's one where I went in really siding with one of the hosts, Kevin O'Connor. And over time, I've actually started to shift more towards Chris Vernon. But over that time, they built a ton of chemistry as well. And it's incredibly noticeable. And it feels like something that just takes time where you get better and better, more chemistry. And even you gain chemistry with the listeners in a weird way where I've never spoken to either of them, but I feel like I have more chemistry with them, even though I'm not in the room. How do you go about judging that, creating that chemistry to the extent that you can with hosts that you manage or oversee or coach? Is there any tricks that go into or things that you could do to speed that up or help that? From a management coaching standpoint, I think one of the great issues in podcasting, which is why the hit rate is probably so low, is there's very little coaching that goes on. People just do it and maybe they luck out and it works rather than it doesn't work. One thing that is important to note about the mismatch specifically is that Vernon is a radio person. He sort of plays the role. His opinions are pretty sharp, but also he moves it along. He knows what to do with Kevin. He knows how to tweak him. And Kevin probably learned as time went on, but I would imagine that Chris had a sense of how that worked. So in terms of building that chemistry between hosts, there's two important things in building that. The first one is knowing your role in the relationship. If you're lucky and you work for somebody who can help you identify that, then you can maybe get there quicker. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Here's where my role is in the conversation. A lot of times you have to help a host get from point A and point B and saying, I'm not trying to pigeonhole you and I'm not trying to get you to act, but this is show business. And people, their favorite personalities, they can describe them in a few different traits. You could say, if I asked you to describe Vernon, if I asked you to describe Kevin O'Connor or Skip or Stephen, you could do all those things really quickly and really concisely because they know who they are and they continue to live up to that. So if the two hosts know who they are, that is the first step. And then the second step is getting them to understand and appreciate the fact that the differences, which is what causes the friction for the audience and what causes the friction for the conversation, but is uncomfortable within the conversation is so valuable. I remember the midday show in Philadelphia who was going to be the morning show, Joe DeCamera and John Ritchie, those two people are as different as any two people I've known in my life for two people who are essentially the same age, the same gender, like the same things, working at the same place. They're so different. Richie was an NFL fullback. Richie is an NFL fullback and just the oddest conversation of artsy and just Neanderthal, but also the most thoughtful person you ever met. And Joe DeCamera is the radio sports geek, born and raised in Philadelphia, only cares about his teams. Richie only played there two years, spent a lot of time in the Bay Area. Very, very different. But I think Richie wants to be goofy. Joe just wanted to be serious. But I think over time, they've learned, John has known, well, this show wouldn't move without Joe. This show wouldn't have the pace without Joe. And this show wouldn't understand the true feelings and history of a Philadelphia fan the way Joe does. And Joe also understands from John that I wouldn't have been goofy without John making fun of me. And 
I wouldn't have understood the mechanics of football the way that John understands the mechanics of football and all those things. And they bring something different. And I'll tell you, talking to somebody else for four hours every day, and a lot of times on the other side of a topic is really hard on a relationship, super hard. Even if you're acting, even if everybody goes into it, even if they thought Shannon and Skip are 100% acting all the time, still you do that every day. I remember I hosted a show with Josh Innes in Philadelphia for about four months. He was a sports talk host. It was the only time that I was on every day for a few months. And I spoke at St. Joe's and one of the college students asked me if Josh and I hate each other. And I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wake up tomorrow morning. And at the time, Sam Bradford was the Eagles quarterback. I was like, I want you to wake up and argue with your friend about Sam Bradford for four hours and then go home, go to bed, wake up and then call that friend and argue with them for four hours about Sam Bradford again. This is a true challenge. So I think understanding who they are, understanding what the other person brings and why that's important and why it causes friction. And at the end of the day, in a role that takes an extreme amount of ego to succeed, you have to have a giant ego to think to yourself, for four hours every day, people should listen to what I have to say about sports. And a lot for sports talk hosts, people who had never worked in the field, never played professionally, you need this extreme ego. But when you go in and talk about these issues and work out what's going to happen on the show and work out whose opinion is going to be the more important one today, at that point, you have to be egoless. You have to understand that you have to share, you have to be ready to be told they don't like your idea and theirs is better. And you have to be ready to honestly look and say, that's the one. And I'm going to support that opinion by elevating it, either by disagreeing or questioning or agreeing with, but my job is to make that person look good for the day. If you can grasp all of those things, and if you can remind yourself of all of those things, and you have the natural elements and the desire, you'll get there. But it would be crazy to say that it's not an enormous challenge. Yeah, I mean, even the most successful pairings or the all-time pairing of Mike and the Mad Dog had a shelf life because of that friction that's created. And the few pairings, I'll use another TV example, but Kornheiser and Wilbon is a unique relationship because they can have the arguments and they do a lot of other stuff to bring in a removal of friction, but it seems particularly tricky. Is there a piece of that puzzle that you find that new hosts often struggle with, or people in audio in general, a common thing that beginners struggle with? The one thing we didn't talk about is not only are you having these arguments, but you're having them in front of a giant crowd who can interact with you. And we'll remember most of the time when you're wrong. It's not amusing when somebody was right. Nobody cares when you're right. They only care when you're wrong. Sometimes being wrong is the best thing because people want to hear it. But you're having this argument in front of people who essentially are the judge and jury as to whether you are right or whether you are wrong. I think the biggest challenge is being okay about being wrong. And I think that is the thing that maybe was a lot easier 25 years ago before they could scroll their phones and see everybody reminding them of every time they're wrong over the last 25 years. Now, in terms of the relationship part of it, I actually believe understanding who you are and the definition of who you are and what the audience expects of you is probably the hardest thing to nail. I managed a politics station for a while, and it's a little bit different. It's a lot different, actually. You would think it's the same because the arguments feel the same sometimes, but the idea that your personality should be whittled down to something specific 
And you should put everything through that filter. When you come into it, you feel like the thing that they're listening to you for is because you know it, because of your knowledge, because you're so good at it. But like lots of people know it. And if you really knew it, you'd be working for a team or a betting professionally or something. Your skill shouldn't be knowing it. It should be something different about that. And I think identifying that takes a long time because it's not just about you and how you know of yourself, but it's really about how people react to you. Yeah. For lack of a better term, it's developing a brand that you kind of own and that you represent. You mentioned a little bit about you have the audience. It's very interesting. Audio is this intimate medium, but at the same time for podcasting, I actually find it very difficult to know exactly who our listeners are. We see a lot on Twitter. We see some in comments, but it is a little bit difficult to measure that feedback and know exactly who it's coming from. Have you found effective ways to do it? I think with your podcast, you guys do an incredible job of connecting with your community, as you would refer to it as. But as you extend that into radio as well, how do you think you can listen to how the fans view you or identify you? It's funny. A lot of what I've talked about is about the people I've managed and not what I've done. The rights to Ricky Sanchez, we've been doing it for almost 10 years now. And I would say really just over the last two years, that thing about respecting each other's role and understanding their place, I actually think we've finally gotten there. I didn't have a manager. Here's just somebody who I talk to for three hours a week about basketball, and I disagree with him about so many things. And why is he so wrong? And why does everyone think he's right when he's definitely wrong? And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. And it's good that he thinks that way. It's good that he's an optimist. It's good that he dabbles in the minutia when I'm just like, I can't play. It's great. I agree with you. You can do a podcast and see the numbers of the people who listen, and you can intellectually understand that they're there. And you can even do surveys that can identify demographic and interests, but still it doesn't quite touch it. And then you have this helpful, but also can be detrimental feedback mechanism of social media and email, the super active users. If Rice Ricky Sanchez has 10X number of listeners, the people who are interacting with us every day, maybe 1X, maybe it's half of 1X. And I realized that I remember the most when, not when we had live events, but when we would have trips and 500 people would go to Milwaukee and all of a sudden it would be a 58-year-old guy, his son and the son's wife. None of them are on Twitter and none of them email. I've never heard from them, never seen an email, didn't even know they exist. Now, if I looked at it analytically, I would say, well, most of the people are them. I don't interact with most of those people. When you ask people who are walking down the street, what's your favorite podcast? And they say, Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman. And you say, have you ever communicated with Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman? Have you ever sent him an email, tweeted them? And they're like, no, of course not. Why would I do that? I just listen to the show. I'm just normal. I think you have to respect those hyper users because they will, from an audience standpoint, they'll drive revenue. They're thought leaders, but they are not everyone. And they are the loudest and you will hear most from them when they're upset with you. So I think the more things you can do, the more touch points you can have, the better of understanding. And really listen, if you can go on Twitter, if you can 
have an event, if you can have a voicemail line, if you can have an email line, if you can send out a survey, if you can have a newsletter, if you can have so many opportunities for them to interact with you, I think the more different people from different segments you can get, that's the best you can do. And now radio, you're lucky you get phone callers too, which are a hyper listener too, but a different kind, not the same kind of person that you'll interact with on Twitter really. So the more the better, but it's really difficult. And I think it gets increasingly difficult as our modes of communication become increasingly polarized. Yeah, I'm definitely looking for a different kind than the type on Twitter. So wherever I can find them, I'm all for it. Do you think that waiting that 1x of the 10x more or less matters? Like, should you wait their opinion more because they are so engaged with the show? Or is it the opposite where to potentially grow the audience, you're probably not going to gain that many crazy fans and maybe you want to add the marginal fan? I think it depends on what your product is. Comparing it to a radio product, take a sports radio product versus a specific basketball team product, even in the same city, are doing really different things for different people. And if I was hosting that basketball podcast, I might listen to my diehards a little bit more because they're probably a higher percentage of the audience than like a mass market sort of thing. So I think it depends on your audience and your product. Listening and reacting are two different things too. I think listening to everything is super important, but thoughtfully trying to compartmentalize what it means is an entirely different thing. And unfortunately... This is the same with podcast downloads. It's the same with radio ratings. Unless you have this big budget for research, if your results are poorer, you don't usually know why they're poorer unless you've made a significant change and that change in audience happens when you made the significant change. But if two years ago I had 10X and I've done everything exactly the same and today I have 9X, there's no part of any of this. There's no part of ratings. There's no part of downloads that give me a reason why that happened. So ultimately, you sort of have to believe in the art of it and you have to believe in your internal sense of the product. As a podcast host, it's been easier because everything we've done has been something that I specifically enjoy. So when I design a t-shirt, I'm designing a t-shirt that I would like. Everything is about my specific vision. So over time, our audience has either become used to that or we have found audience who just thinks the same way. So that's that way of doing it. But when I'm coaching radio talent, I'll tell them that. They'll ask, well, where are the ratings this month? And let's say they're 10% lower. And they're like, why? I have no idea. Which is why when you're asking yourself at the end of the day, when you've done a show, is this the best I could do did I do all of the things that I believe a good show does? And if the answer is yes, and the ratings are still lower, you have to say, it was an aberration. I'll keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Unless you're spending the money on research, you're really just following your gut on those things. There's a lot of noise in the numbers, and I only see it from the podcast side, but I can only imagine. Does the radio use Nielsen? Yes. Yeah. It'd be very noisy. Incredibly noisy. Yeah. Incredibly noisy. Now, with everything, the further you pull out, the more data you have and the more general it is, the more accurate it is. If you look at the radio rankings of a market, let's just say for males of a big enough demographic for two years, just look at the order. You probably look at it and say, 
Yeah, that makes sense for two years. But you could look at a quarter, which is three months, maybe a smaller age demographic, and you look at it and you go, well, why was the pop station number two with men? They're normally seven. And really what it came down to is that two men who happened to like that radio station got a different job and work at a different time. And they were listening at the time that matters the most and fucked everything up. The more you can back off the numbers, if you're doing a podcast and you're doing one a week or two a week, if you're down for a week or two pods or five pods or something, I wouldn't really take too much in it. Most of that is driven by outside factors, not something that you're doing. We're big fans of the trailing four-week average as a nice little way to measure it. You mentioned a little bit before about the differences if you were a local basketball podcast versus a sports radio covering the same basketball team. What are the key differences there just in terms of approach? So I learned it because doing this podcast twice a week for about five years, but weekly for 10, if we do an hour about the Sixers, we're going to talk about the seventh guy on the team. Or sometimes we'll say, hey, let's just focus on two guys who are not even on the team anymore, who used to be on the team. Because the people who are coming to you, that's the depth they want there. They have specifically come to you about a podcast about the 76ers and one that is on twice a week with a weird name. They should know what they're getting into. And if they don't, they know pretty quickly. And then when I would have to go on the radio and talk about the Sixers, it almost felt impossible because I couldn't divorce myself from the deeper understanding I had about things. And it would sometimes make my opinions sound crazy. I would think Robert Covington, a player on the Sixers, who was essentially just a role player. To me, he was of utmost importance. But if you went on the radio and talked about that, you couldn't do that because it isn't really. Those people are more casual and care about the bigger picture things. They don't really look at advanced statistics. They're not going to look at scoring efficiency. They're going to look at how many points per game get scored. So you have to think about what the audience is coming to there for and then what their base knowledge is. Here's the other thing. They're listening on purpose. They downloaded it. They subscribed it. They got through the first minute or two when we're bullshitting about nothing. They know what they're getting. People who listen on the radio, maybe you're their third choice. Hardly ever does anyone get to a podcast that's their third choice about a specific topic. Maybe they're in the car. Maybe the Sixers have won six in a row and they pop it on. They just want to hear about the Sixers. Well, you have to think about that person. You don't have to cater to that person, but you have to understand that they have to understand what you're talking about too. That would be the big difference in those two things. It sounds like it's looking for a deeper conversation or a less general conversation. We could debate with terminology. Do you think that's a case of demographics? And do you think that converges over time? Do you think radio ever gets more deep or podcasting ever gets more general? Or do you think it's just a case of how the mediums work and that they'll likely stay the way that they are? I don't know. It's a really good question. People who have a negative opinion on sports radio, the young person is like, wow, podcasts are the thing. What I see is podcasts trying to, whether it's Spotify or call-in or something, is like, guess what? We can do this thing where your favorite host talks directly to you and talks live and not recorded. And you can even talk to that person and you listen. It sounds like shit. Most of these things sound like shit. And you're like, oh, 
Imagine if you had a platform like that, but you got to hear your favorite host every day for four hours. It's like, wow, that sounds amazing. They're all trying to create that infrastructure that radio already has. And when I say radio, I'm talking about like spoken word specifically. Music is a different place, a different story. But I think that you could get to a world where we attempt to do this digitally at our company. At Odyssey is like, let's say somebody listens to our radio station through the app. Let's take WFAN, for example, right? They like WFAN, but they're mostly a Mets fan. And when they tune into WFAN, mostly what they want to hear is the Mets. So you tune it in. And if we're talking about the Yankees or the Giants or something, they're like, ah, I'm out. But if they listen to it through the app, I probably know that about them. I probably know they're a Met fan. And what if I took every product we had that talked about the Mets that day and fed it to them and said, we were on the air for 24 hours yesterday. We only talked about the Mets for an hour and a half, but that's more than enough for you. But you tuned in three times, didn't hear it once. And Evan, our afternoon show host, also three times a week does a Mets only podcast. So how do I super serve that person? I think there will always be a distinction in that it will be really, really hard to have the infrastructure of a radio station and the advertising model of a radio station and be too focused on one specific thing. Going that deep, your audience gets smaller and smaller and smaller. They might get more devoted, but then there's fewer people that can be around and those sorts of things. So I think we will see more of a mix of the two things in that people's listening environment, whether it's through an app or whatever, is combining those things for them, sort of the best of everything. It seems like if there's a model that maybe translates or correlates to podcasting, the NPR model, where you might get these stories and these episodes where it's, again, it's narrative. It's a different type of conversation. You were referencing the difference in, in the sponsorship divisions, the models, the structures. Can you talk just a little bit about what goes into the powerhouse that is radio advertising or the model of sponsorship and all that? It is evolving constantly, but podcasts are really good for direct response and for national things. They cannot deliver local things. I'm not talking about dynamically inserted advertising, which is one sort of thing that happens in podcasts. The most effective thing that happens in podcasts is live read in content. Local advertisers don't really have a solution for that in terms of podcasting. And in the podcasting as well, there's a lot of have and have nots in terms of advertising. You don't really have the ability to reach the frequency that you would on radio. If you take my podcast, for example, we do two podcasts a week. That is six total advertisements in a week. Even if you're an every week spender and somebody listens to four out of eight podcasts in a month, they may only hear that advertisement one time. Whereas on radio, you do have a frequency advantage. Now you don't have the sort of diehard direct response all the time that you want, but you're also not paying for it in the same way. So I think the advertising model in radio, specifically sports, we do have the advantage that podcasts have of having personalities that people care about that can endorse a product. Maybe you take the endorsement commercial and complement that from a frequency perspective with a pre-recorded commercial that may not have the same impact, but will be less expensive and have better frequency. And then at the same time, you might be able to say, and this is the advantage of having a salesperson and a program director and a host and all these things and say, product A, company A really wants a way to integrate. 
into this product. And you can say, hmm, who are they trying to reach? Not only who are they trying to reach, but what are they trying to make them do? Are they trying to make them believe something about my product? Am I trying to make them do something? Am I a beer just trying to get somebody to go to the store and buy the beer? Or is this a branding exercise? And are they comfortable with letting us customize it? In radio, you could, okay, so first you have that endorsement commercial, then you have that recorded commercial for frequency, then you have an integration with maybe a regular feature that happens on the radio station. And then on top of that, oh, I could also have this host at my business or this radio station is putting on the event where 800 of their listeners are going to be and I can touch, I can have FaceTime with them. And I think radio is able, especially the local version of radio, is able to take all of those things in a way that podcasts can't quite do. I think podcasts do other things much, much better. You're usually only hearing one or two ads in a row. On our podcast, it's only one. And on radio, you might hear five, but it's a different model. And you need more advertisements on the radio because you're supporting more than two people with their USB mics and laptops. You have a whole infrastructure, but you can be more effective, I think, if you're willing to take the time to do it. With your podcast ads, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you have very strong repeat advertisers. I was telling you in an email before the episode, I've bought something from LL the jeweler. My dog sleeps on a big barker. And part of that is you make the advertisements into content themselves. They're very much a piece of the content. It's been hammered into my head. I can name every single one. But I'm just curious with your own sponsorship strategy. One, you're very effective at it. I think that's very easy to say. They also repeat, though. You can be funny and effective at giving advertisements, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to convert. Do you think that's a case of your delivery? Are you just keeping rates at very reasonable prices? Is there anything else that goes into it from the sponsorship perspective? You would be hard pressed to find a local podcast of our level who monetizes the specific way that we do. A lot of what I learned and the reason that we're able to be effective at it is through my experience in radio. I've seen how it works. Why is it effective? One, as far as rate, I think we're fair. Because I do all the selling, we don't have to split with an agency. I think we're paid fairly, for sure. But nothing wrong with agencies. Not everybody knows how to do this. But if you're only getting 50% of what the rate is, then you have to charge more than we have to do. The other thing that I've learned is that thing about frequency, it all takes time. So our minimum is six months. We do not take on anybody unless they're willing to commit to six months because it takes time. You could be on every week for a month and not hear it. So if you're willing to be in with us, then we're willing to be in with you. And the other thing, we're always category exclusive. You're never going to hear a competitor to anything on the podcast. For a while, it was like you would tune into a podcast and you hear Blue Apron, you tune in the very same podcast a month later and the same host would be talking about Purple Carrot. That's tough. I understand why that happens. But if the goal is to use the endorsement of the host to get you to buy something, if I'm telling you to buy something different every time, I can't think of anything that we've had a competitor on like eventually. And even if I did, there would be a cleansing period. We would go without that category for months and months and months and allow that to go away. The other big thing is that you hear hosts reading these ads and they just read the ad. 
And a lot of it is because they're not broadcasters. They've never done this before. So the agency sends them the ad for product X. The commercial music starts, which by the way, is a sign for everybody that the commercial is starting. The commercial music starts. They read the script exactly as it is, exactly the same way they heard it on every other podcast in the same category they heard. We'll get like a client that comes to us. We don't do any agency business anymore. Occasionally, one or two clients that we've had in the past would be agency, but everything is direct to the client. Occasionally, we've had an agency come and say, hey, we have this product. We want to run a test, two ads, and we'll see how it does. No, I'm just not doing it. Manscaped, they're like, do a test. And I look at Manscaped and we would fucking crush Manscaped. The ads would be hilarious. They would stick on the podcast forever because we would find a way to make it hilarious. But if you're telling me that you're like hanging the carrot in front of my face, I have no interest in doing that. So we've been lucky though. You know, it's a secondary income source. And finally, we don't take on anybody who I haven't met with and believe what they're saying and believe that they believe in what they're doing. It doesn't mean that I am a hardcore user of any product. We have a realtor on our... Be impressed if you use them frequently. <laughs> yeah, right. And he mostly sells houses in Delaware. Now, if I buy a short house in Delaware, I will go to him. But just a matter of talking to him and really understanding his business and why he does what he does, we're able to communicate it. But along with that six-month commitment comes my endorsement and my understanding of why you're better. I think we're lucky in that our audience is of the age where all of a sudden they need a mortgage and they need a realtor and they need a jeweler. They don't know where to go. They don't know any of these things. And I'm a trusted voice, but I think understanding the product and understanding why it's important and really committing myself to it, they are not an advertiser. They should be your partner. This is your partner, DraftKings. They're our partner. They believe in us. They're spending their money to make their business better. And some of these businesses are small businesses. You charge whatever it is, even if it's less than what the rate would be to an agency or something, it's a significant amount of money. It has to make a difference. It has to really work. We've tried to mostly work directly and we've had most success. We did have one deal that they threw at the agency at the last minute, of course, that turned into a problem. So I always like to say, I don't have problems with agencies. I've yet to just have a good experience with one, but I know it's coming. It's going to happen. And by the way, there's like a couple of agencies that control so much of the business. Yeah. That was my learning lesson going into the year was maybe I should be a little bit more open to those, but there's all types of hoops and hurdles and certain middlemen actually have a lot of value. Others, not as much, but going back to the talent point with athletes. You have a lot of athletes that are on your shows that you manage. Then you have a lot of non-traditional, no sports background, and they're often paired together. But do you think athletes bring something? Obviously, they bring their experience that others can't. But how much do you think that practitioner value comes into play? And we think about this a lot from our side where we're doing mostly business and investing things. So we love to have people that were actually in the field and not just pure analysts. But it's tricky because sometimes those people can't tell the stories nearly as well as the people who are on the outside. I think the right athlete is an awesome asset to have. I saw WIP now, after some hires, will have a former Eagle in every 
day part. And I saw somebody saying, well, what about the Sixers and what about the Phillies? And I just think to myself, wait a minute. So you're telling me the host who has not played a professional sport is more apt to be able to talk about the Phillies or the Sixers than the host that played for the Eagles? Why? <laughs> like, If anything, the host who played for the Eagles at least understands what it's like to be a professional athlete in that city. And if they like baseball and basketball, chances are they understand it just as much as the sports talk host. I find former athletes, the right ones, to be more coachable than non-athlete talent. Not that non-athlete talent isn't great, but I was lucky enough to work with Ike Reese in Philly and John Ritchie in Philly and now Tiki and Boomer in New York. Just hosts who like being coached spent a good part of their career. Now that they have to respect you, they have to believe that you know what you're talking about because even when they were playing, if they didn't think the coach knew what they were talking about, there's probably less of a chance they would listen. But I find former athletes to be, the longer they get away from the game, sometimes the better, because when they're too close to it, I think they can feel what the athlete is feeling maybe a little too much, which will prevent them from maybe swinging when they need to. So every year that goes by, especially in the sport that they played, every year that goes by, they become a little bit more willing to be opinionated in that way. But they have to really want to do it because it's a full job. There are some athletes that get into it. It's just like, imagine having your career done at like 29 or 30 or 31 or even 40. The thing that you're best at, all of a sudden, you don't do it anymore. Some of them go into media just because it's the thing to do. Some of them love it and want to be good at it. And the ones that love it and want to be good at it are an excellent, excellent candidate to do it. The same, if you were to talk about politics, if you take somebody who was a politician and no longer has any desire to run, that person has a chance to be amazing. Billy King worked for us in Philly. Billy's a great dude. Billy's career is not over. So Billy would have to think about that. Billy didn't want to be a host the rest of his life, but he had this other thing. I think once you get a former athlete who's done, knows they're done, truly is committed to it, I think there's a lot there with a lot of them. There's that willingness to be critical, whether it's about people that you were playing with a couple of years ago or people that you might coach in the future or GMs that you might be making deals with. You can certainly sense when there's a lack of willingness to say anything critical. The other thing is it's a challenge for them. The ones that I've worked with have learned over time. When you're butting heads with a caller or another host, the minute you say, I know because I played and you don't because you didn't, it's over can't do it anymore. We all know you played. While we're arguing, it's in the back of all of our minds. We're giving you credit for it. But the minute that you say that this conversation is not legitimate because of what I know and what you don't, then a conversation is over the same way that if the host who had been a host for 20 years and the former player who had only been in the air for five, the host said, we shouldn't talk about that. What do you know? You're a football player. I'm a host. I've been doing this my whole life. It's like, well, I'm in the same room with you. We're doing the same job. So that is really important. As far as being opinionated, it's super duper duper important. Analysis is cool. It's cool to hear a former NFL linebacker or running back explain to you something that you didn't understand about football. That might be the benefit of a show on NFL Network where they break down plays, but it's not what most of this is. Most of this is opinions, is how you feel. 
it's not hard to get them to have them. It can be hard to get them to express them, how they actually feel. You might get something different off air than on air. It's just a process of continually saying, this is what we do here. Here's what they expect of you. Here's what the value is. And here's how you can do it without, you can say the player's not good without saying that they're a piece of shit. There's a difference between the two. But I think the opinion part is really, really important. How important is it that that opinion is controversial or non-consensus? I think this is a general misunderstanding within the industry about the people who do this and within the audience. The hosts that we think of as most controversial, the ones we talked about at the beginning, half the people agree with them. It's just that when half the people disagree with you, that's a lot of noise. Half the people think that they're right. If you talk about Skip's opinion about LeBron, half the people agree with him. If their opinion was always the 20 part of an 80-20 opinion, they would just seem like a troll. You wouldn't believe them. They wouldn't even be able to inspire the sort of debate that the good ones are able to do because you wouldn't believe what they were saying. The same way is that if every opinion you had, 80% of the people agree with you, it's not that interesting. There's no conversation there. To me, the goal of sports talk or even sports podcast or something is I want to start a conversation. I want to start a conversation. So if everybody agrees with me, I might be right. It might be thoughtful, but there's not a conversation there. Doesn't mean I don't agree with it. It doesn't mean I have to say something I don't agree with, but it does mean I have to look deeper within what I think to find something that is a thought starter. Normally, these thought starters are best if on the surface, the top level, they are binary. I think X or Y. It doesn't mean that the truth isn't somewhere in between. I think Daniel Jones should be back on the Giants next year. Sure, you could come up to me and say, oh yeah, what if it's an eight-year deal for $50 million a year? Okay, now we're talking. But the truth is, I think he should be back. You don't. Let's figure out why that is. And let's debate why that is. For me, it's about digging within the things that you already believe to find the thing that is interesting. And the thing that is most interesting usually is the thing that there is disagreement about. Doesn't mean that your first instinct isn't correct in terms of what you feel. It doesn't mean it's not right. It doesn't mean you shouldn't say it. It means that maybe it's support for what you're really trying to say and just keep talking about it and keep thinking about it until you figure out what that thing really is. And I think for most people, it's usually not that far. It's really a word or two difference. It's really like 10% away of just shifting it and saying, well, what if you said it this way? Or how do you feel about this? Or you think quarterback X is good. Is he a top 10 quarterback in the league? Top five? What is it? Where's the line? By the way, that goes back to that process that I talked about, the egoless process that your first instinct's not right. Okay, be told that you're wrong. Have the commitment to keep digging and find that conversation. So I think there are some people who say things specifically to get a response. A response is the object on some level. But I think you would find very few people that are successful in this world who are consistently saying things that at least half of their audience don't agree with. That's the magic of it. You find like a young sports talk of somewhere and they're like, well, I don't want to be like Stephen A or Skip or Colin Coward. And it's like, oh, you don't want to be generally thought of as one of the most successful people doing exactly what you do. I understand what they're saying. But if you really think about what they're saying, that's like a basketball player saying, well, I don't want to be LeBron or Michael Jordan or anything like that. 
it's been eye opening to hear people in the business that I think very highly of and the respect that they have, at the very least, the respect that they have for what those guys do and some of the praise that they have. And a conversation starter is a really good way to put it. When you brought up the Daniel Jones example, I was thinking, well, saying Brian Dable should be back is not a conversation starter. 98% of people will agree. Daniel Jones is a conversation starter. And that doesn't have to be Daniel Jones to get a max contract. Right. Don't poke holes in this to make it not a conversation. Don't say, well, I want to trade for player X. Oh, yeah. Well, what if they ask for all your draft picks? It's like, but that's not what we're talking about. They're not going to. I was actually, it's funny you mentioned about Dayball. I was having a conversation with a young host at FAN who did a thing about the entire rap. It was good rap. It was about how Robert Sala shouldn't be fired. The Jets coach should be back next year. And I was like, it was good. It was definitive. It was opinionated. I don't really think there's enough people that think he should be fired to have that conversation. I said, what was your backup for that conversation? Your backup was all the things that he did well this year. I was like, what if you did the same rap, but your headline was Robert Sala did a good job this year. And we're talking about a team that's lost five in a row, who's not going to make the playoffs, but did do a good job. And I was like, you were talking about all the things that improved from year one to year two, and that he was six and three with Joe Flacco and Zach Wilson, a guy who won't be in the league next year and a guy who may never pan out. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe you were close, but could you say out loud that there's a significant portion of the Jets fan base who is calling for Robert Sala to be fired? I don't think so. That's not enough, but it was close. I like the distinction. When you start thinking about how some of the athletes are taking media into their own hands, coining new media, you have people like Draymond Green. And I actually think you're seeing this in a lot of different areas of media, even with companies now and the way they deliver messages differently. You have executives on Twitter delivering messages. Do you think that is something that's at the early innings and you're going to see this major shift just in terms of how analysis and communication is delivered and the old way of doing it through traditional airwaves is dying and it just becomes a different medium? Or is this a flash in the pan being made out to be more than it really is? So it's funny when Draymond Green says new media, when all he's doing is the same thing that establishment media does is getting on a microphone and talking for an hour and saying inflammatory things and claiming they're right when everybody says he's wrong. I don't know, man. Doesn't seem like there's anything new. Just seems like you're telling everybody how fucking dumb they are because they don't understand why you're good, which is honestly the number one thing that I would tell somebody not to do. You should have respect for your audience. You're trying to get them to listen. It doesn't mean they're right about everything. I think it's different for every player. I think I would ask on the top level, is it truly benefiting them more than it's hurting them? And I don't know for most players who are doing podcasts, if you take Kevin Durant, who's one of the best players of all time, and the podcast is fine to listen to, but I think to myself, did he make more money? Is he more famous? Maybe he's more fulfilled. In that case, maybe he's happy, which is a fine reason to do it. But I think it probably doesn't. I mean, I think the minute that you start publicly giving opinions and having people tell you you're wrong is probably doesn't make him happy. I think it's a thing. I think a lot of it is probably funded by money that would, not talking about any podcast in specific now, but money that probably won't be recouped. And maybe in two years, 
you look at a lot of the companies that did deals that paid a player, because most players, you're going to have to give them a guarantee to get them to do this. They're not going to say, yeah, just build it in six months or a year when you have a big enough audience, you'll make it. And we're starting to see that there's a thinning of the herd in terms of the bigger audio companies committing money to podcasts because the ROI is off. Then I think over time, you'll start to see players say, what is this doing for me? Maybe my profession one day, but it's not my profession now. So why am I doing it? And most people, it's not going to be their profession. Not everybody's going to be Gigi Reddick. So I think that part will happen. In terms of like teams and players controlling their own message versus going through media to control their message, we love having players call in, love having coaches call in. Sports radio and sports podcasts will be of the exact same value to the audience, whether the players call in or not. I think what the good team PR and the good agencies know is that if the player's message is received through a channel that the audience finds to be unbiased and honest, then that message will resonate differently. So if an interview comes from the official team account, I know, even if I watch it and I enjoy it, I know there are certain questions that that player is not going to be asked. And because of that, the value is lower than if it is on a place. So I think it's like a mutually beneficial relationship that will continue. In terms of current players doing media on their own, I'm not talking about interviews, I'm talking about hosting their own media. I just don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze for them. And I don't know if it's worth the squeeze for most companies that are paying them to do it. It brings up a good closing question, actually, which is in situations where you have your hosts with a player or a coach and you have a critical question that needs to be asked, those are very hard. And let's say they're on weekly. You have a relationship that you actually do want to manage. And from a business standpoint, makes sense to manage. How do you coach asking critical questions? You have to be honest and respectful. And if you're doing that, I think most players and most coaches will understand that that's what it is. Angelo Cataldi is an amazing example of this in that he is incredibly critical. He can be incredibly critical. He asks hard questions, but when he has the player or coach on, he's respectful in the way he asks the question. You know who's actually just won an award for it? He's great. Julian Love, a defensive back for the New York Giants, a few weeks ago, just blew a play for a touchdown. He went for an interception. It was on fourth down anyway. So honestly, even catching the ball would have been a detriment. He should have just knocked it down, hit the player, whatever. He whiffed on it. Guy caught it, touchdown, basically blows the game open. We have him on every week. He's got to know that question's coming. And as long as he knows the question's coming, you ask it in a respectful way. And when he answers, maybe you have a follow-up, but not pester him and not shame him. Just tell me what happened here. Why? Why didn't you do this? The athletes and the coaches who are going to do weekly spots with people have to know that not every week is going to be good. And I've dealt with a lot of players and a lot of coaches who have been fine answering those questions. Some aren't, but those aren't the kinds that you want on every week anyway. Yeah, that's right. Too much PR training is not a good thing. This has been excellent. I've learned a ton, so I appreciate your time. And it was an incredibly valuable conversation. And thanks for sharing all the wisdom. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you having me on. All right, we are back for the debrief. I did not have Dom on mute for that entire interview. It was our first, hopefully not of many, but our first single one-on-one interviews in making media. 
And given it was the first, I just want to understand how you felt being on the outside and what grade would you give me? How did I do on that interview? I actually felt totally fine. It was Friday evening, my time. I was probably in the pub somewhere having a nice time. Could wake up to this on a Monday morning and listen back to it. Grade-wise, I thought you did pretty well. I think there were a few questions you left out. I'm going to give you an eight in our grading system that has no sevens. I hope you feel okay with that. There's room for growth, but you also did yourself justice. And I think Spike himself also brought it. It was together a very useful conversation, particularly for me. I'll accept that. I was going higher, but I will accept it. I do want to get into the reasoning for the episode and why we brought Spike on. I'm a big believer that you can learn from people that are tangential to what you're doing. Anyone can say sports radio, sports podcasts have no overlap with business breakdowns, invest like the best, and what we do as a podcast. Maybe that's extreme, but I often think people poo-poo other industries or people that don't perfectly align with what you're doing. I'm the exact opposite. I think you can learn so much from the success that they have. And I think sports media is probably the most successful media. It might just be because sports is there, but I think they've figured out how to do it. How did you feel about how many lessons were actually applicable to what we're doing? I've got a list here and there's probably 10 things on there. Wow. I understood probably 2% of the cultural references that you discussed. They were all US-centric, which is fine. I understand. But in terms of the lessons and things that he brought out, a lot was applicable. I think you can get into danger extrapolating too far. And I'm sure some of those in my list of 10, there's probably three that maybe I'm taking a bit far. But the stuff about characters, I think, is so interesting. It made me think about a podcast I really enjoy. And his point of every character has to know their role. And it has to be really easy for the person on the other end listening to be able to say in one sentence what that person's role is. And I could literally go through all the different podcasts I listen to and say, yep, that's his role. That's her role. This is what makes that person interesting. And then the point to friction as well. And you see this in the hero's journey comes up as well. Like You need a point of friction. You need some reason why the person can't get to the stage they want to get to. And I hadn't really thought about it in podcasting or radio. But again, when you think about the things that are culturally relevant or always surfacing, and you might find them really irritating, but it's the friction that creates the excitement and the fervor around it and makes people want to listen. Before we go on, do you think we have one characters and two friction? In this show? In any of our shows. Yeah, we have characters. Like Patrick 100% has a character. His character is a backpacking man through the Appalachian Trails, just following his own curiosity, interviewing people he finds behind trees. That's his character, in my view. I think Breakdown's probably a bit harder. I think the characters there are probably the companies themselves. Yep. And then here, I mean, Spike, it took him eight years to find his character. So I think we've got another eight years ahead of us before we really hone in on who our characters are. Yep. I think it's uncomfortable to say, oh, do you have a character? But it's really just leaning into your personality and not trying to put on this polished PR-centric personality, which is void of anything specific to you if you just actually are who you are behind the scenes. But it's particularly powerful. All right. You got through two of your 10. This requires a bit of soul searching from us. Do we need to change the way that we talk about our sponsors? Our beloved scribes, our beloved Teguses, he talks a lot about how to talk about your partners and sponsors effectively. No, I do not have to change how I talk about scribe. <laughs> the transcript this of Colossus. I actually think that what he's doing is authentic. A lot of what he's doing is within the podcast episode, which we don't do like mid-rolls. That makes a big difference. And the only thing that I would say that they do, which is creative, is they will incorporate 
games or something else along those lines into the ad reads. So it, it's keeping you focused on what you're actually listening to. So it might be a trivia question associated with that particular sponsor, or it might be a story or something along those lines. He is very good at it. I also believe that everyone that sponsors the show, he actually believes in and he has very strong personal relationships with them. So that's a difference maker. But Scribe ad is performing quite well. So <laughs> Okay, fine. But I do think there's probably some things that we could do. You know, we're very thoughtful about who we partner with. Scribe, Tegas, OKX, for example. But maybe we could just bring them to life a little bit more. Really share our personal stories, which you did with Scribe. I'll give you that. And so maybe we can do it in other places. I give ourselves a B plus on the way we talk about our partners. There's probably room for improvement. Fair. What about you? What's on your list? You only got through three. You got to keep going. Uh, what's else on my list? Just how young podcasting is. So every time you talk to someone in the business of podcasting, the first thing they say is don't react to the numbers. Don't pay too much attention to them because they're kind of meaningless, which as investors, that really irks me that you can't rely on data to inform the way in which your business is set up, whether you think it's successful or not. They're always like these qualitative, you just got to trust your instincts. This is a passion project probably. So you'll know your audience better than the data will. So if you think it's interesting or you think it's worth trying, then give it a go. And you can't follow anything quantitative. And then his point on the reason why there aren't many hit podcasts, because there isn't really any coaching in podcasts. Again, people just start this stuff because they find it interesting. And then if they're fortunate to find a following, then they get better because they're getting reps. Both of those things to me highlight how young this industry is. Lots of people talk about how podcasting is oversaturated. Those two points in a nutshell explain to me that this has got a long runway ahead of it. Again, reference the startup podcast. Episode four was asking podcasting was dead, and that was in 2014, 15. So it's a tale as old as time. And the coaching point was really interesting because there really is no coaching. And going back to the data, I think most of the conversation about podcast strategy actually is all data centric, or at least what I see is so data centric. And it's very much the tech community that comes in and that is their background. So they are going to just base all of decisions based on what the data is telling them. And it's removing a lot of the art from the product. And I think that's important to keep in mind. I think his point rings true. You don't want to overreact to something that's one week or one month or even one quarter. The true story is told over the course of a year, especially a couple of years. And we try to adjust for that. That's why I look at trailing four-week averages for a lot of things, trailing eight-week averages. I think that at least balances out the weird anomalies that you have with some of the data and not making that change your decision too heavily. Maybe this is an appropriate time. It's probably too late. But why Spike? Did you know him beforehand? Did you listen to his podcast? I know you're a big Phillies guy. Talk us through the background there. So I was listening to Spike on his podcast that was related to 76ers again. Not the Phillies. Nope, not the Phillies. Wrong team, same city. Basketball, yes. (laughs) And he is the son of a very famous sports radio personality, Howard Eskin, who has been in Philly sports radio for a very long time and is considered a character. And Spike, I would listen to, and I thought to myself, man, he really knows how to get a community built around what he's doing. And certain things that he was tapping into with events, and getting this cultural buildup. If you go back to one of our favorites, Sam Hinkie, The Process, a lot of that was very much built up, glossed up because of what Spike was doing. And when Sam left the organization, there was a big billboard put right in front of the stadium 
wishing him goodbye, probably much to the dismay of the organization, funded by Spike and his podcast and some other benefactors behind the scenes, some of which are quietly known behind the scenes. And it was those types of things where it was clear that he knew exactly what he was doing. And it wasn't gimmicky. It wasn't trying to take advantage of people. It wasn't like hacky. It was authentic, creative approaches to this and making his audience feel a part of something bigger. And it built up to the point where they're having parties to celebrate the draft. Everybody celebrates winning a championship, not celebrating getting a draft pick. It was literally the lottery for who would have the first pick. And they're hanging a banner in this bar. And this is showing up on SportsCenter again. So it's the type of thing where it's becoming a cultural phenomenon. And it's this tiny little thing that I always thought was interesting. Then when I saw that he was in charge of sports radio at the Philly station, he gets hired to be that same position at New York Sports Radio, WFAN, which is the original in sports radio. And it's hard to explain how culturally important it is. Growing up in the New York area, it was what people had on their radio at all times. It was like morning coffee and that was on. And there's like a whole group of personalities. There was one person in that job before him. And then he got hired to do it. So it just confirmed in my head some of my suspicions that he was really, really smart with audio. He really knew what he was doing just in terms of coaching, but also being in the seat himself. And I think that is something that I wanted to tap into because it's clear it comes somewhat natural to him. Like it's in his DNA, literally, like in the genetics. He's very different from his father. But when you have that suspicion, you see somebody who's coming up the ranks and you think to yourself, I think this person's really talented at what they're doing. And I don't think many people would give him that same credit I think the getting hired at WFAN should have been the validation. But I would expect in 10 to 20 years, to the extent that this industry continues to grow on the podcasting side and on the radio side, he's got a long road ahead of him. So I think you'll see a lot more from him in the future. It traced all that growth back to his appearance on Making Media. Yeah. Back in the early days of 2023. Did he make you feel bad about the lack of Colossus merch? And I refuse to use the word swag. I believe they're interchangeable, but swag just cuts through me like a knife. (laughs) He's great because we had a conversation about merch after the show. He put me in touch with a key contact of his at an important place who is working on that right now. So he did not make me feel bad. He should have. We had a long conversation about this. The relevance of swag and what you do it for. It is for you, the listener, not for any money-making opportunities. I just want to do it right. You know, you can do more harm than good if you come out with a swag shop that's weak. Yeah, there's doing it right and there's never doing it. And we've been firmly in that latter camp for coming on two years now. You know, me and Robert Caro, we have certain standards about how we approach things. And when it takes time, it takes time. But when you get them, they are the proper masterpieces that they should be. And that will be the same for our swag shop. So, Wow. Linking merch with Robert Caro is a stretch. Like I said, I like to borrow from tangentially related things associated with what we're doing. And Mr. Caro can fit into that category for me. Multidisciplinary. Love it. Anything else from you that you're going to take away and implement? We need a voicemail line. Love the idea of a voicemail line. Love the whole concept of who is actually listening to you and going on a trip and talking to a family that has never been on Twitter before. Deep in my head, I know you're out there. You have never spent any time on Twitter. You just listen because you love what we're giving you. 
So you were in an airport recently and I just bashed you for not ever creating any merch. You did make yourself a hat with the Colossus logo on. Take us to the airport and that interaction you had because I think this is kind of a similar thing. Limited edition. There were only 15 of those hats made. You're going to get one eventually. Just got to work on getting those shipped out. Yes, was rocking the Colossus hat the five days that I was away. I had met this person when I was with my son trying to watch a football game at a beach bar. Son was going crazy. So, of course, he interrupted this nice gentleman and his wife's dinner and struck up a conversation and see him again at the airport. He asked me what I do. I mentioned I'm actually in podcasting now. And I say it with that awkward tone. And he goes, oh, Colossus Family of Podcasts? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm a listener. And sure enough, he is. He had a handshake that pretty much shattered my hand. I try to go in with a strong grip. It's no like dead fish. But holy smokes. Turns out he was a former football player. Knew my neighbor, LinkedIn friends, big future ahead for us. I cannot believe he used Colossus Family Podcasts verbatim. But anyway, it's a fun story and also goes back to Spike's point of the ones that you think are your listeners are probably not the bulk of your listeners because they're out there somewhere where they don't have access to Twitter. They don't mean to email you. They're just content listeners out on the wherever they are. Yeah, but you can give us a shout at hello at joincolossus.com for any feedback. And we look forward to coming back next week. Got another audio creative mind on the calendar, which I think you will enjoy if you have any involvement in creating podcasts or audio content. This is coming from a different side of the equation. Another big piece of media, not sports media. So we'll tease it with that. Dom, it's been a pleasure as always. Bye.